0: Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is where you'll find conversations with the authors and illustrators whose work has been nominated for the annual shortlist. My guest on today's episode is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for a while now. Actually, when I first read their book when it was published last year, I was holding out hope it would appear on the short list. Mm-hmm. Ivan Coyote's Rebent Sinner is nominated for the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes, as well as the Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Ivan is a beloved storyteller, musician, writer, and a whole bunch of other things that I could list for hours. Their books have been nominated for many awards, including the Hillary Weston Writers' Trust Nonfiction Prize, and have won awards like the Stonewall Book Prize. Rebent Center is personal, political, and funny. And when you're done, you'll want to go back to the beginning and spend more time with Ivan. Ivan starts our conversation off with a reading from their book.
1: Shame. A love letter. Do you remember all of your shame like I do? Does it creep into your chest when you wake up too early? Does it lie there, coiled beneath your scars? Does it trickle down between the muscles of your back when you sweat inside the shirt you can't make yourself take off, even on the beach on your birthday, born in August? We walked along the powdery sand to find a place to put our towels, and I couldn't find any words to explain why I was crying on such a sunny day. Seven days later, I can now say out loud that undressing in a crowd reveals what feels like a fading target on my chest. White semicircles where breast is now chest, and round pink nipples I have not been able to feel for five years. No one is staring at you, I tell myself. There are all kinds of bodies here, I tell myself. But still, none that look like mine. What did shame ever teach me except to be ashamed?
0: Thank you. Welcome. I. I wanted to kind of start, I guess, start at the beginning with this book and ask you how this project in particular started for you.
1: Well, I guess I'll start with the title, which I I wrote a little bit about in the book itself, but I used to work in the film industry in a previous life, and I was on the props truck, uh, which meant I sort of organized everything. It was a good job for, like, People who like to like label stuff and not label stuff, not people. I mean, people who like to like have, th- you know, things all organized in bins and have it ready to go like in a, in a split second. But anyway, I was I would I was mostly on the truck getting prepping stuff and get it ready for the next scene and then running stuff up and fetching things. And, and so the props truck was kind of like my little area. We often shot in the downtown east side, like film crews still do, I think. Every time there's an alley scene in any of these terrible TV shows that we see shot in Vancouver, it's mostly the downtown east side. And I think that time we were shooting actually in what's now the Woolworths building, but it was before it had been renoed and turned into condos. It was mostly old offices and stuff like that. There used to be this woman, we think it was a woman, that was the rumor, um and I think I saw her one morning, but she used to leave these signs everywhere that said Repent Sinner. And you've probably seen some version of them. Some people hipsters made knockoff t-shirts of it, but you could tell <laughs> that she had the same same handwriting. Um and the I think the the rebent was in red and the sinner was in black or the other way around. It was red and black and She wrote them on foam core or little pieces of cardboard and stuck them all over the place. And I came to set really early one morning, like, and it had just rained, but it was starting to get sunny and it was kind of misty. And I, I think I saw her disappear around the, around the corner and there was one of these on the props truck, except for that she hand lettered them all back then. And the B on re the P on repent had like a stick, like a tail, like someone had bumped her elbow and, Instead of saying repent sinner, it looked like it said rebent sinner to me. So I tucked it in my backpack and I laughed and I thought rebent sinner. And when I got home, I, that was back in the day when I used to work for like 18 hours on a film set and then come home and write at night. Sometimes I'd fall asleep at my desk back in the, So I, I, I tacked it up on the little corkboard above my desk and I, and I stared at it for years. Until that house ironically burnt down, but uh, <laughs> destroying the rebent sinner sign. <laughs> don't know what that means, but anyway, I used to stare at it and think, like, if that's if that's a good book title. Like, I don't know what the book is about, but uh, it's a good book title, Rebent Sinner. It's like, like, if I just keep practicing at this homosexuality thing, I'll get it, I'll eventually nail it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just. I always liked it whenever I saw it on signs or, or whatever afterwards, you know, and um, when the evangelicals would show up at protest pride or something like that, I would always, I would always translate it in my head to rebent bent sinner. Just be like, yeah, I'm just going to keep at it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then like every author, I guess, um, you know, at, at gigs and festivals, when I, when I don't want to sound like, know, Captain Old Guy or whatever. But when I first started doing festivals, you know, you'd get seven to 10 minutes or 12 minutes. And of course, nobody stuck to their times. But anyways, that's what you'd get. That used to work fine for me because I wrote a 1,000 word column for years and years and years. So I had a lot of these bits that fit into that little slot, 10 minutes, 12 minutes. And then as things progressed along and the sort of model for for public performance changed unless I was doing a theater show of my own stuff but every time I showed up at a festival it was always like and everybody's going to read for three to five minutes you're going to do a two-minute selection or and I know the novelists really struggled with that because they would sometimes have to take you know four minutes just to set everything up and two minutes to introduce them, and then you know there we all are at 11.45 at night We yeah. the 14th person to come on stage or whatever. We've all been at those readings, right? Yeah. So I, I just, and I guess it was a function of social media as well too, these little short bites. I just started writing these pieces, these little short bits that were like intended for that. They were meant to be short. They were meant to be, and they're perfect for readings. Because, you know, you can, if, once you start into a 12-minute story, that's it. You're hooped, you, you know, um, especially if it's a story that's, that's meant to begin and do its thing and end. And as when I did, because I sort of cross over and I do music festivals and stuff like that, too, I'd be on the stage with like four folk singers and, you know, the, the, you do what they call a round robin and everybody's like, oh, the two-minute folk song, three-minute folk song, and then I would be like, well, I'm going to have to do my whole thing at the end and do one 12-minute story, and, you know, like, it just didn't work. So I started crafting these little short ones, and they're really fun, and they're great for performance because you can can sort of really, like, custom craft a little, even a five- or six-minute set if you want, or a seven-minute set, and you can... You can if you and if you've got real, real quick, snappy ones. You can. I've been at. I've been now. now I'm the opposite of the storyteller who has takes needs 15 minutes to get going. I I did a, I did a gig where they're like, oh, we've only got one minute left, and it's too short for a, for a song. Ivan, have you got one more of those? <laughs> Doritos, literary Doritos. Probably can't do that, but anyway, that's what I called them. It's just like chips. And I started sort of compiling those as I was going along. Every time I had one that I liked, I'd, I'd put it in my special file. And, and then I started working on these essays as well. And at uh, first I didn't know if the essays were going to groove. And, um, and then I kind of, it, it all came together and I liked how it came together. Because I feel like I had these chapters that were predominantly these little short bits. And then sort of in the, in the meat, in the guts of the book. I got to do these longer stories. I, I guess some people call them essays. I, I still call them stories. That's what they are to me. It's, I've always been driven by story. I got to, so to kind of compile them all together. And I, 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 I feel that it works. It's, you know, you you get, you can pick it up and read a little bit and be okay. And then you can get into the meatier stuff and say some more stuff with more nuance and then i feel like the chapters i was i've always been really interested in the order of things when i'm putting a book together it's a big part of the process for me i write i make i get those recipe old school recipe cards because it's not something that well, some people could do it digitally i i need i want to see it like analog style laid out so i would write down you know a little bit sometimes the whole bl- the whole Dorito, if it was just a really short one or just enough so that it only had to make sense to me, laid it all out on my, all over my apartment. And, and I, then I sort of put the ones together that I felt thematically were linked in whatever way. And sometimes it was an overt topic or sometimes they were more esoteric and some of them, you know, probably only made sense to me. And it was more about the, the heart or the, Aroma of the story, the the sort of spiritual aroma of the story. I don't know if that makes any <laughs> sense. But, and then once I had the the little ch- chapters of the all the pieces, and those were ordered, then I decided the emotional landscape that I wanted to put them in. And you know, so I spent a lot of time on the on the, ordering this book as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious because you're, you're talking about the emotional landscape and I read about kind of what happened for you in the writing of this book and um, with, you know, your grandmother passing away and just kind of the emotional journey for you happening kind of on the sidelines through the emotional journey of writing a book, which is its own thing. And then I, I read that you said you, this would be the last nonfiction project you would write for a while. Has that changed for you? How are you feeling about the book now that it's been, you know, a year or so since its publication?
1: Yeah, that has changed. Um, And there's so much stuff that didn't make it in the book that was also going on in my life. I turned, well, it's in there that I turned 50. I also, um, I think in retrospect, uh, struggled through what turned out to be like a pretty profound burnout that culminated Um, literally, just like May of 2019, when the book, when I was, yeah, when I was kind of where would I have been in the whole process of that? Um, yeah, the manuscript, like, just at the end of the whole process, you know. Um, I think I, I was really, really like, in my marrow, exhausted, uh, like I had never ever been before, and not. Part of the part of that was um, I had agreed to do a whole bunch of school gigs for the Surrey School District. And when I signed the when I signed the agreement, it was like they said, oh, yeah, well, well, we're going to pay for it. The school district, not the individual schools, usually the individual schools pay to bring a performer in or a show in. We're going to pay for it. It's part of an anti-bullying initiative. Probably be, but we're not going to mandate it for any school it's only if they sign up and probably be 20 25 gigs and it was ended up being like closer to 45 gigs but i had a window that i could work do it in that had coincided there was x factors their their budget when the fiscal year was over and my physical touring schedule so i ended up doing like over 40 school shows in about maybe five or six weeks. Wow. Yeah. And I had, I had already said previously, like I capped my school shows at 650. No, that was just completely disregarded repeatedly. It'd be like 800 kids, 900 kids, 700 kids. Uh, I also said I could only do four days a week and, and I, that I could maximum two shows a day. But then, so, then sometimes they were like, well, what if they're all in the same school? So you don't have to drive in between. And you could just do 3 and, and oh i had two little jordan peterson fans storm the stage in one school I had a lot of good things went down too i want and i do want to say that i met some amazing teachers and kids like i always do doing that work but two little jordan peterson fans stormed the stage they weren't allowed to come to the their their grade wasn't invited or scheduled to be in there but they wanted to come and like disrupt and ask me a bunch of stupid questions and they 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 had they got basically ejected from the gymnasium just before we started. and But can you imagine the gall, like, coming after the invited public speaker in front of 600, 700 of your peers yeah. and repeatedly refusing to leave the – like, I just – anyway, again, not to sound like the old guy, but I would never have even thought of doing something like that in grade 11. Anyway, no. and in some ways, you know, I guess the kids aren't as little, you know – parroting automatons as they were when we went to school, uh, they got ejected and I guess the principal talked to them and someone thought it was a great idea to not notify me and not send a teacher with them, but they followed me out to my car after the event was over and reportedly to apologize, like one of those, like someone made me say it, apologies, but I I didn't know that. I was in my car after like a, you know, hard show already. A kid asked me if I'd ever been gay bashed and in the question and answer. And I said, yeah, twice. And he laughed out loud in front of all of his peers. Yep. So I was like already traumatized in my car. And then these two little assholes pounded on the door and said, roll your window down. I literally thought I was going to get gay bashed in the parking lot of the school I'd just done an anti-bullying show at and we ended up having to go back in and have a big process and during which the principal of the school rolled his eyes when i told him that i used the singular they pronoun and uh yeah and and i and i called them assholes and it all became about whether or not i could swear at the kids and the principal was like well they might not have been conducting themselves very politely but you're not allowed to swear at the kids and i was like actually you're not allowed to swear at the kids I don't think I've ever signed a contract saying I can't call an asshole an asshole, whether he's a high school kid senior or not. And, uh, anyways, it was stuff like that. It was just day after day after day. I went to another school and they pissed all over the gender neutral bathroom in between shows, like all over the, the mirror and the, and it all culminated with a school show in Surrey where a kid did a not a Heil Hitler salute. Oh my God. And, yeah. Yeah. And at first the school was like, he's going to be expelled. This is intolerable. We, we, it will not stand. He's, you know, this is going to happen, you know, he, uh, and then none of the other kids would, would admit that they would, that would, would, uh, would say that they had seen it. And the kid just flat out denied it. And he was a pretty rich, like it, it was, tip, it was just so typical. He was like captain of the football team and a really fancy neighborhood and just basically went home for three days and um, didn't come back to school for three days after and then came in basically full-on denying it that, that it happened and had they had no proof and so I got super super burnt out during that period right before the book came out just burnt out with that burnt out with the community politics as well just kind of feeling like I just wanted to, I just wanted to sort of escape into writing fiction and not have to, I was tired of, I was tired of Q and A's after gigs. Um, just like, I was, I was just, I was, uh, I was burnt out. I was really, I was tapped right out. I was tired of hosts, like, you know, introducing all the other cisgender uh folks with great intros and and then like and this is ivan who uses a singular they pronoun i'll try to wrap my head around that and uh, anyway welcome her to the stage i just got burnt, really burnt out with it all and i was like i i was i was even like i want a I want a pseudonym i can't even remember it right now stone fisher <laughs> St- uh, no what is it not stone um Sten Fisher, which is a uh, Swedish for stone, so yeah. it's like a play on Stone Butch Blues. And Fisher was like, I was gonna be like Sten Fisher, like mystery author. <laughs> 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 I'm feeling a, I'm feeling a little bit. You know, I'm feeling a little better now. Yeah, 25 years on the road can really pound the spirit out of a person. At the same time as I've, I. I credit my life on the road with, um, you know, probably ninety-eight percent of the most amazing experiences I've ever that that I've had in my life. At the same time, as, uh, as uh, yeah.
0: I think something too that really stood out for me just in the reading of uh, Rebent Sinner was, I mean, it's it's about your story, but you also, in putting yourself out there, create this. You're holding space for other people's stories too, and and these young folks that you meet at the high schools who feel that, that safety with you to share, um, how does that impact you going on the road? Because you get these negative experiences, but you also get these really touching moments too.
1: Yeah, I was writing about this the other day actually. It's like, uh, it's like every single one of those experiences becomes like a little pebble or a small stone. And some of those stones, are stones. And some of those stones have little wings on them. And so it, metaphorically if, or not. And, uh, but there's still stones. There's still, there's still stones and there's still experiences and you still, uh, I, you still take a little piece of that interaction with you and, and carry it with you. So, you now I probably should do, probably should do some kind of, I don't know what the, my body worker friends would say, or whatever. Like, I don't know if I need like aura a cleansing or massage therapists have to do it because they take on sort of like residual trauma or whatever. I probably I probably need to learn how to do some of that kind of stuff better, you know, or just a good old fashioned Yukon way, which is like just chop a lot of kindling, just really <laughs> chop a lot of kindling and think a lot and uh, <laughs> go go on a long bike ride, paddle out into the middle of the lake and scream as loud as you can and then paddle back, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I've heard a lot of, you know, authors talk about that, who write about, you know, trauma and their experiences and people, you know, in reading your work on the page, feel that connection and then want to share, but it it is heavy for, for you to carry that as well.
1: Um, I think it's one of those things, it's like, it's a huge honor to be that person, too, in lots of ways, right?
0: Earlier, you mentioned how you've, you've always been drawn to story and kind of driven by story. How, where did storytelling start for you? Has that been part of your family story for, for a long time?
1: Yeah, uh, my one half of my family is uh, mostly Irish and Scottish immigrants to Canada my grandma Pat's kitchen table on, in her house on Elm Street. She bought that house in 1967, I think. And uh, she, it wasn't sold until 2017 when she passed away. And so what would that be? 60 years, 50 years, 50 years, a lot of years. <laughs> Uh it was a great hub of storytelling, as was my grandma Flo. And she's uh she was raised in England, but she was Irish, Roma and a little bit Jewish. Her kitchen table as well. So we I come from kind of a a family of sort of pre cable TV, tea drinking, players light smoking, uh Yukon storytellers. Yeah. And uh not I I'm good, but I'm, I don't even think I'm the best storyteller in the family. Some some days, yeah. My grandma Pat could tell a great tell a great story. All of her sons are storytellers. All my uncles, yeah. So, and then anyone who dared to try to hold hold court at that table to learn from them as well, yeah.
0: What did you learn about telling great stories from people like your grandmother?
1: Oh, it was one of those questions that is always like, (laughs) you know, students ask me that. How do you write more humor? Like, how do you tell a good story? It's like, it's it's one of those unanswerable questions, really, in so many ways. Like, it's I think it's it's largely about picking the right story for the right time, in the right crowd, in the right order, and you got to know the, you got to know the. It's it's you have to you have to find what drives the story forward and and stick with that and then not bo- not bog it all down in the details but again this is a kind of magic that's I don't really like to I don't really like to think of, to dissect it too much because it's like it's like taking a perfectly ticking antique watch apart just hoping that you're going to be able to It doesn't look like much when it's sitting there with all its parts and then maybe hopefully be back together without losing some spring that's vital to the whole operation you know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's the right story for the right time because it's not, some people say, oh, it's pacing, it's this or it's that, but that's not true. Some of the best stories that I've heard were were not that well told or, you know, my grandma would repeat herself or she would lose her, her space, but that story was perfect, a perfect story because it was necessary and because the person who was telling wasn't going to be around much longer it we, we all knew that and you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. it's not all about the craft it's and to think that it's all about some kind of craft is not doing the is not doing the whole art and history and culture of storytelling uh much of a service either you know
0: yeah
1: yeah
0: i guess my question now maybe it ties back to something I said earlier what asked earlier but uh are you writing nonfiction now you said you're working on a book project are you going fiction or mystery
1: um, working on three projects right now actually so one is uh, one is letters during the pandemic I was working on this mystery and then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden I was like I don't know what to I don't know how to treat this I don't know do I write this, do I bump everything back so that it's all the, 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 it was a mystery that was part of it happened in the late 80s and part of it happened in the in the now time. And I was like, oh, I don't even know how to deal with the now time. Do I set it all in November of 2019 and like, you know, skip the pandemic? Do I, you know, I don't I don't know how this is going to work itself out. I don't know what the world's going to look like. I have no idea. So that kind of ground to a halt a little bit and uh, so I started just answering letters, emails from people, so I'm working on this manuscript that's all um letters back some of them some of them I had written the person and, like originally and said that, that thank you for your beautiful like seriously sincerely beautiful letter and i you know I was on the road two hundred and twenty five days out of the year, like i you know, and I had to get other like i just don't i didn't know so anyway i Going back and answering all the letters. I'm still working on the mystery novel, although it's taking a back burner right now a little bit. And I'm working on a graphic novel uh, for a YA graphic novel uh, treatment for a publisher down in the States.
0: What's it like being in one place when you're so used to being on the road? Is it an adjustment? Oh, yeah. I mean, Sarah, my
1: partner, is a musician, and between, like, I don't actually remember the last time. I was in one place for this long. Like, I, it's been 20 years for me. Easy. And, uh, and by far. And I, and I actually split it up because I've been in Ontario. I had to fly back to Vancouver in, in April to deal with my place. Because I was, of course, on the road. I'd left Vancouver March 10th to do a gig. March 13th, I was going to spend a couple of days with Sarah and go to St. Catharines, Ontario, and do this gig at Brock University. I my gig on March thirteenth got canceled at nine forty five PM on March twelfth. And then by the time the weekend was over, you know, two months worth of gigs had been canceled. And uh and then by the time that week was over, it was three or four months of gigs had been canceled. So I stayed in Ontario for about a month until um I started having nightmares about walking into my apartment and like the the roof was caved in and uh uh, you know, it had been looted, and <laughs> nobody. I had left my apartment thinking I was leaving for four days or whatever, and yeah. so I had to fly back. And, but other than that little uh, brief jaunt, I've been here in London. I mean, we're going to be writing and thinking about this year, in so on so many levels, and hopefully dealing with the change in our society that's gonna that we're that we're feeling happen right now, for uh, forever. And, um, uh, but on a personal, on a personal level, yeah, it's been, it's been really weird to like, I've gotten really into the garden here and uh, I watched these peonies that go from like frozen dirt that I, that I raked up and cleaned up and took all the dead growth away and then watched the earth kind of thaw. And then I watched these little green tendrils come out of the ground and, and all of a sudden this giant plant sprung up. It's probably like chest height now. And uh, all these little buds grow. And then, you know, then there was all these ants on the flower buds. And uh, and I was like, oh, there's ants on the penis. I better go and do some Googling around to see what to do about all these ants. And then I read that um, ants actually... Peony blossoms uh secrete this sugar. I don't know if you know this, but peony blossoms secrete this sugar that the ants come and eat. And the act of the ants like chomping at the sugar actually helps the peony blossoms open. So they have yeah. like a symbiotic relationship. Huh. Now that peony plant is like all the blossoms are pretty much and they, it was incredible. I like and I've never I'm just happy when I come home from the road that my neighbor came in and kept my plants from dying. And like, I have two balconies in my little apartment. One, one summer I was gone for six weeks and I got my neighbor who was really nice and I showed her, but she didn't know about the other balcony. And so I came back and one of my balconies of plants were kind of okay. It had been pretty, it was the summer where all the the fires and stuff, and it was really hot. My other balcony, like, you know, and I never, she said, how is everything I, tr- I did my best to make sure? And I, I never had the heart to tell her that she killed like 11 of my plants. And um, so anyway, I'm just lucky if, they, if everything makes it through the summer, right? And I've never got a chance to like watch a flower go from nothing to a dying blossom. In so many ways, I hope the world doesn't go back to so-called normal after all of this. Like, I hope we deal with systemic white supremacy and racism, I, 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 uh, I hope we go to a four-day work week. I hope we uh, take what we've learned about the benefits of things like a universal basic income and health care for all and really apply them to, you know, to our, I guess I hope capitalism really gets the kick in the ass that the world desperately needs it to get. And however that we managed to make that look. Uh, and I don't want to go back to 225 days on the road. I knew that for the last couple of years, but I, I'm, I don't have a master's degree in creative writing and I don't, you know, I needed to make a living, you know? Mm. And that's, yes. I, made, I made the bulk of my living on the road. Like newsflash, you can have 12 books out in Canada and have them all be fairly do okay and that doesn't translate to a solid paycheck.
0: Thanks to Ivan for being on the podcast. It felt like we could have talked for hours. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. And thanks again, as always, to you, our listeners, for listening and for recommending our podcast and sharing it with people. It means a lot. If you'd like more information on the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with Kayla Zaga, whose book of poetry, Dunk Tank, is nominated for the Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks again for listening to Writing the Coast.